So. What is that? Oh, you know what you have to do when you have time is message me this wine you've been talking about. I was in uh, two shops yesterday and for the life of me, I could not remember the names of them. The trick is I used to get them both at Total Wine. Mm-hmm. And they have stopped carrying one of them, so I have to go to Whole Foods for one and Total Wine for the other. <laughs> well, it's no problem for me. I mean, it's like way the fuck out. But there's one near near uh, Tribeca, so I could check that out. Sure. Yeah, they sort of like Walking Dead wines and. Yeah, I mean, I this, this is cheap I heard, wine. It's it's like yeah. ten dollar wine, but it's good. If yeah, I saw no ten dollar. I was like, where we have all the ten dollar wines gone? <laughs> where can they be? Because I was like, I, one place I've been to a lot, and I used to buy, you know, go with like, you know, 60 or 80 bucks and get a couple of nice bottles of wine. And mm-hmm. I was like, fuck, 15, 25. Yep. And then I remembered a few being reviewed quite favorably when I couldn't remember yours. Right. And I said, wow, that's pricey. <laughs> so, yes, uh, that's the problem. I, I don't know. I used to get a free subscription at Wine Spectator. I'm like, oh, this all sounds great, but not when I see the prices. <laughs> They had a special wine tasting over there one time. I don't know if it was when they first opened the one by us or what. And I had Insignia, and it was the best fucking thing I ever tasted. I was like, God, I love this thing, right? How much is it? $125 a bottle. Oh, go ahead, spoil yourself. <laughs> Are you crazy? <laughs> oh, before we go to the show, the place I was at yesterday, they had a section on rise, right? And they had apparently a small batch company called Dylan's is going out of business, and I thought they just went into business, but be that as it may, they had bakas and gins, et cetera, et cetera. Cherry-flavored gin, yeah, well, you oh, know wow. I'm staying with that. <laughs> it, it might be too sweet, but they had a rye, and the prices were amazing. So I said, <laughs> I got to the counter, I said, hey, you know, by the way, I can't in my memory recall what rye tastes like. Oh, here, take a shot. Take another one. I was like, <laughs> I don't like it. Thank you very much for the buzz as they walk out. <laughs> <laughs> no, if I liked it, I would have bought it. It was like really, really great price. But I was yeah. like, nah, I don't like this. You know? And and the one that they push their total one that isn't bad is uh, Radius, the Radius Red. But it's not as good as the other two. So that's kind of what I flipped through with them. And you told me high-priced shit that you like. And they have a synth there. I'm like, holy shit, I didn't think they made that anymore. I know I heard some hipster bars were bringing it back, but, you know, it's from the 1800s. This is what everybody kind of went crazy on back when you had all the decadent poets and everything. So I grabbed... I have a bottle. Do you really? Yeah. I grabbed the one that was, you know, like in the $15 range, but that's kind of a knockoff. I forget what the name is, like Parnas or something. All the other ones are pushing, you know, Okay, 60, yeah, I know, that, I know that one. Yeah. yeah. So I used that yeah, one once in a while. One, this one was 6080. I got it on sale 49. I had it a few times, and then I, I did a shot of it once. Oh, what a mistake. Because um, <laughs> oh, it was such a headache. Yeah. The best thing to do, because a lot of bars are doing this now, a lot of cocktail places, is just add a zap of that to the drink you're having. You know, right. like you, you have to look online for recipes. And it's, you know, it's a nice taste. But, yeah, I've had this for a few years now because it's the kind of thing you don't really, you know, drink that much. You know, it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's exactly like you get in the mood for it and then it's like, okay, well, I think I'm done with this and the ball's not even finished. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, well, that you have to, you have really have to do a moderation that because even if you do it correctly and, and if this is actually in the podcast, folks, uh, this is from your master bartender at large. Even if you do it carefully and look online for uh, measurements, too much of that will fuck you up. Yeah. So, 
That's right. Uh, yeah, I mean, if you want a nice buzz, if you want a nice different taste, I highly recommend it. But be careful. And don't and don't waste it by doing the, let's put some sugar in there oh, and I burn it. Oh, I hate that. I see that all the time. Put sugar in. I'm like, why would you need sugar in this? It's already got flavor. It's already sugar fermented with, you know, whatever the fuck else. Come on. Really? <laughs> we we should do a show as just a... A booze show? <laughs> we could. We definitely yeah, could. Yeah, we should. We, we talked about this before, and I, I think it could be uh, very consumer helpful. Consumer oriented. <laughs> no, because I, I certainly am a vodka man. I can talk about all the vodkas. I'm a scotch and bourbon man. I can talk about these things. And and you're obviously a wine gentleman and so a connoisseur. Well, I've become and, one. Um, I used to be a bourbon guy. I used to be a vodka guy before that. I've had my experiences that have turned me off one after the other, but yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we could talk about the evils of Southern Comfort. Uh, <laughs> That's true. To this day, before we go on to Joe Don Baker, folks, to this day, if I'm at a bar and a gentleman or a lady within my radius, a snifter, has Southern Comfort, I have to move. <laughs> <laughs> I just I just had such a bad experience uh, when I was younger. But it's my fault. I, I, downed, a, I downed a fifth. Yeah. And so... I was with guys. I was with the buddies, you know, the, the guys I grew up with. But that's where I passed out in the snow. Yeah. And so that that is a true story. Uh, <laughs> I had a similar experience with vodka, and yeah, it wasn't a fifth, but it was a lot. It was pretty close. I definitely down more than half a freaking bottle. And straight, by the way. Nothing in it. <laughs> no rocks, you know, just straight up. And, um, yeah, I apparently uh, was almost on my knees. They were kind of carrying me out back <laughs> home. And the whole next day, crawling around the floor, just crawling back to the bathroom and throwing up again and wanting to die for a couple of hours. And yeah. So after that, I kind of swore off vodka. Other than, uh, you know, at my wedding, somebody gave me a screwdriver again and your lovely vodka martinis, which were amazing. But uh, otherwise, I just don't touch it. I don't even keep it in the house anymore. <laughs> no, we got we got to do that again sometime. We got to do a get together. We're overdue. Definitely. All right. Actually, so. booze is the perfect lead in to. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's actually true. <laughs> You're listening to the Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine. You're essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Tonight, besides booze, we are talking Joe Don Baker on Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to, I guess this is the third episode in the sixth season of Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell and join me, Doc Savage, and my co-host, Mr. Lewis Paul, as we discuss not only liquors, but the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. So, 
Only in the 70s could a beefy, drawling television character actor change gears and morph into not only an action hero, but, as I recall, even some measure of a sex symbol to an audience bedazzled by an aging Vegas Elvis and the good-humored down-home charm of Burt Reynolds and Chris Christopherson. After nearly a decade toiling away in bit parts on series from Honey West and Gunsmoke to The Mod Squad and Mission Impossible, Texan good old boy Joe Don Baker brought a likably rootsy appeal to his roles, from the corn-pone death wishisms of his breakthrough hit Walking Tall, to roles with Kung Fu specialist Robert Klaus, like Golden Needles, as hard-boiled, vaguely noir-esque detectives Mitchell, Speed Trap, in outright horror films like The Pack, and as crusty authority figures in things like To Kill a Cop and Power, sometimes even in comedies Fletch, Joysticks, and <coughs> Leonard Part Six, uh, <laughs> eventually landing a recurring role in both the Dalton and Brosnan runs of the James Bond franchise, he'd spend later years filling in for Carol O'Connor on In the Heat of the Night, and working artsy critical faves like Cape Fear and Reality Bites, even dropping in for a spot in the late 90s comedy smash Mars Attacks. Remember more of these days for being sent up mercilessly in no less than two memorable episodes of Mystery Science Theater 3000. Join us as we delve deep into the Deep South, braving these crawdads, poke salad, chitlins, and greens for some tasty down-home cinema to talk the films of the inimitable Joe Don Baker, only here on Weird Scenes. Walk softly and carry a big stick, films of Joe Don Baker. The kind of character who can only have been as popular as he was when there were legions of women young and old hot for Vegas Elvis. This is the kind of guy where you either appreciate his down-home southern charm or kick back and laugh in disbelief at this sort of overweight good old boy taking center stage as some sort of action hero. Personally, I kind of straddle both camps, as regular listeners of the podcast and readers and listeners over at Third Eye Cinema should be well aware, because I have a strong appreciation for camp where you can love something to death while still retaining enough detachment to be amused by the absurdity of it. It's kind of like knowing something is pretty much crap but enjoying it all the more because it's crap but it's fun. It's pretty ridiculous sometimes watching Joe Don throw down against younger and fitter opponents, much as running down a crowded street, something Mystery Science lampooned admirably when they tackled Mitchell, which was actually probably one of their funniest episodes, or watching him as a romantic interest for someone like Linda Evans, and yet, you kind of want him to succeed, like, yeah, this could actually happen somehow. So, I do love Joe Don Baker and his films, and thought it was hilarious when he threatened to kick those guys' asses, <laughs> but I'm still not sure how serious he was or wasn't, which actually makes that all the more funny. So, uh, did you want to kick off with a little bit of history about him? Yeah, yeah, I did. I, I, one of the things I wanted to say, before we delve entirely into him, there are three guys. There's Joe Don Baker, Bo Hopkins, and yes. Bo Svensson, yes. who I don't want to say, I do not want to say they're interchangeable, because they are certainly not. They're three different very recognizable but at the same time they each got roles that the other one could have done and vice versa and the thing is you know i think probably the most versatile even though his texan draw is joe don baker the guy we're talking about today oh by far definitely there's no comparison i mean i like the other two but those guys especially both Svensson, he phones in his performances a lot yeah. i've never seen joe don phone in a performance even when he's on screen for like a minute yeah. He always throws a lot into it. Yeah, so. and, and Bo, bless his heart, he could tend to be creepy as fuck. Yes. So, <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> I, I never met him, folks. I'm sure he, he may he may quite be a nice fellow if he's still around. But yeah, so but Joe Don Baker is interesting because even in his hard case villainous roles, I, I found him not as hard to take yeah. as Spencer, who, uh, if I'm correct, wound up doing Walking Tall part. He did. Blah, blah, blah. Part two or part three were so, yep. Yeah. Or the, the final return of the vengeance of the son of my gun. Um, 
the so Joe Don, who was this past February, just hit 82. Yes. Bless him. He looks good. Was born in Grosbeck, Texas. He was University of Texas graduate, you know, BA, the usual stuff, did a stint in the Army, were not surprised. Went to New York to learn acting. So that's interesting. He's a big guy. Well, he's my height. 6'3". I was 6'4". I got him then shorter. Don't ask. <laughs> uh, and he did, I think our last show, we discussed someone who began a lot in television, uh, yes. Peter Fonda. Yes. And Jordan did the usual, you know, Bonanza, Gunsmoke, etc. But he had a presence. Yeah. The, a Honey West. That's the best uh, thing. I'll just interrupt for one second. Just please. recently, those who know me personally, maybe about a month ago, I posted about how we were finishing up watching the entire Honey West series. We kind of do these things. I get a DVD set or whatever. At some point, we finally dig into it and kind of binge watch our ways through it for, you know, whatever it is, a week, a month, whatever it takes. So technically not one night of binge watching. We just watch it, you know, straight in tandem for a couple of days until we finish everything. And we were sitting there, and one of the last episodes, I'm like, holy shit, that's Joe Don Baker. And sure enough, this was his very first role anywhere as far as we know unless it's some theater which was on an episode called uh, Rockabye the Hard Way not any particularly memorable episode of Honey West except that here's Joe Don Baker he's in there for I don't know he shows up twice but it's very brief he's kind of like a truck driver that shows up at this local truck stop and he's sitting there at the counter gets a couple of lines and yet even there he stands out and he's like what do you remember about the episode well, I remember seeing Joe Don Baker in there and I was like, well, he must have did more, did he? Did I miss something? No. That was it. Cool hand, Luke. He had an uncredited role as the fixer. I've seen this film quite a few times. I want to acknowledge he was in it. I can't remember him in it. But he was in one of these Magnificent Seven things, guns. Now, everybody remembers the Magnificent Seven. Magnificent film. No pun intended. <laughs> it's odd that it took, God, about four or five years afterwards, maybe six or seven, until the uh, sequel started kicking in. Yulbrenner did one or two, and one at least, one sequel. And then they started doing other sequels with a ridiculous amount of familiar faces from TV appearing in these rated M movies. You know, M was like the, I believe it was before there was R, you had GP, which I always thought when I was younger, they, they screwed up and it should have been, because this is parental guidance, but they call it GP. Yeah. So you're talking like guidance parental. And then there was M, because <laughs> there was no R then. Right. You had X, G, GP, and M for mature audiences. M eventually became R, right. which made more sense because M was for mature audiences. Wow. So um, somebody's going to get fucked. So, you know, it's, it's not that kind of thing. But anyway, these Magnificent Seven sequels, as I just mentioned, had a lot of TV people. You know, like <sighs> Monty Markham. He was an interesting fellow as an actor. Bernie Casey, another guy. James Whitmore. Renee Santoni, who actually did a lot of, uh, did a couple of pictures for Eastwood. He kind of branched out a little bit. Joe Don Baker. They're all in Guns of the Magnificent Seven, courtesy of... Uh, TV director Paul Winkos, he was pretty pretty much doing that. And George Kennedy had the Chris role, I believe. And yes, he did. And this is this went out through United Artists in '69. It's aside from the Elmer Bernstein music, El Elmer Bernstein actually did do the soundtrack in this. So is it memorable? No, but Joe Don sticks out a bit as this uh, Slater. Because why? He has a one arm and he's a sharpshooter. I mean. 
how else can you stand out in a picture loaded with familiar guys from TV like, look, let's make this guy not only one arm, but he's a sharpshooter. So uh, <laughs> I th- I, it's not a great movie. It's one of the lesser Magnificent Seven sequels. And this was an official one. There was Return of the Seven in 66, et cetera, et cetera. And Magnificent Seven ride in 72, so on and so forth. What's wrong with this is that the... <sighs> The villains are also familiar TV people. We got Michael and Sarah, you know, the go-to guy, uh, Mission Impossible, Frequent yep. Face. Buck uh, Rogers, he was a recurring daddy. Yeah, yeah. So you know, Louis Rivera, Jean Rigaud, who did a, lot, a few Eurospy things. Uh, Fernando Ray, you know, frequent uh, a guy from everything from Buñuel to Franco. That's true. You know, That's true. Uh, to you God knows what doing he was actually in two of the best Spearman roles well not the best well one of his best which was uh, The Obscure Object of Desire which was the last one he did but my favorite which was uh, what's the one where they keep going to the dinner over and over and over again and things keep changing oh is that no that's I'm thinking of the Ferrari movie Le Grand Buffet that's also good I like Ferrari as well but no this is uh, been well it bothers me that I I can't remember the name of it Because I used to watch this thing constantly. It's one of my favorite foreign films for years. But now I'm getting confused. But anyway, you'll know it right away if you see it. I know what's your name. Michelle Dark is in it, Real Dark. Mm -hmm. Very, very amusing. The the reason I like Beanwell so much, which is just an aside, is he was an absurdist. He took a lot of things of Dali and the surrealists. A lot of the Dadaism, which is just kind of tongue-in-cheek, you know, making fun of everything. And married that to this wicked satire, which, of course, since he was in Spain, more or less, even though he did do films in Mexico, and he did do films in France, basically under Franco's regime, which was very totalitarian, he was basically thumbing his nose at him 24-7, and thumbing his nose at the Catholic Church, and very, very dark but funny stuff. I highly recommend Buñuel films for those who are not indulged. But yeah, I can't remember the name of that damn movie for the life of me right now. 72, I believe it was. It's definitely worth looking up. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I, I, so yeah, yeah, so I think that because of his uh, Western television credits and the featured role in this Magnificent Seven thing, he got a notice for things like he was in the Wild Rovers, Junior Bonner with Steve McQueen, which mm-hmm. I saw in a theater, and I it's one of Steve McQueen's 1972, and it's one of Steve McQueen's passion projects. You know, you can never, ever pigeonhole Steve McQueen. He's such an interesting guy. Maybe it's a possibility that they were showing Steve McQueen. I don't know how you feel about him, but I like him. it's funny. The, the things that we know off screen blow my mind. <laughs> blow my mind because I'm like, this is a quiet guy. Yeah, this you know. Still yeah. waters run deep. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah. Uh, Steve Steve McQueen had a lot of passion projects. So actually, one of the last pictures he did was uh, he gained a ton of weight, put on a beard. What the hell was that thing called? Because I mentioned it, I must bear with me, folks. It is. This is what happens when you go off the top of your heads, folks. We remember parts of things or the subject, but you don't always remember the name. Or well, this was an odd movie because this was this is a very strange film. It was a like who knew Steve McQueen wasn't really into this stuff. It was an adaptation uh, which he directed of a famous what an erotic novel. <laughs> No, 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 ah, see, not everything, not everything uh, goes that way. It should be. 
I'm trying to think. What is this thing called? Uh, oh, Enemy of the People, which, no, he didn't direct it, but he was very much. It's an Enric Ibsen play. It's an adaptation of that. Charles Durney, B.B. Anderson. I mean, this, this thing was heavy, and nobody wanted to touch it. It's 1978. It's like a film play uh, with some other minor things. And so Steve McQueen, a very interesting character mm-hmm. as a human being and as an actor. But anyway, Jordan Baker was in Junior Bonner, a movie I saw. I think it was Double Bill or Prime Cut. They're really bizarre. Oh, Prime Cut, I love that movie. That was messed up. <laughs> yeah. Gene Hackman he, as a pimp selling underage girls or whatever the hell. Oh, my God. <laughs> and Lee Marvin. Yep. Lee Marvin. They have a great fucking chainsaw duel. Is that that movie? And The meatpacking plant. Because the, the thing is, he also runs a meatpacking plant as his, uh, what you want to call it, day job, money laundering operation. It's definitely. It's a uh, messed up movie because it's like one of those few movies that, what is it? Sissy Space Chick. Yep. Is, <laughs> that was a pod. <laughs> Sissy Space Chick is, uh, she was in that. And she's like mainly new. She's very young. We're talking pre-carry by like four years. Mm-hmm. And I mean, she's one of the girls that it's a really dark, twisted, very, as you said before, it's like one of those you got to take a shower after one smoke. <laughs> True. And it's out on blue now, believe it or not. Is it really? Yeah. I think Kino put it out. You know, it's one of the, you know, and good for them. <sighs> Here's a couple of things I've seen. I'm like, I liked it for a variety of reasons, or I thought it was impressive i don't want to say enjoyable because some of these things are not really yeah but you know i was impressed by the filmmaking and like what they were doing back in the day but there are a lot of things i just won't buy because i'm like you know i can't fucking watch it again that was dark (laughs) and it was like you know and i'm a dark guy you know i'm a dark loving guy Mm -hmm. but i'm like no that's too much so i'm gonna let you delve into Walking tall. Yeah, and actually, in the middle of all these episodes that he was doing, mm-hmm. he did Gunsmoke in his time, he did The Big Valley, he did Bonanza, you know, all the usual shitty cowboy shows that were out at the time, which you might expect, you know, he had a big Texan guy with a draw and all that. But he also did a couple of weird things, like I mentioned Honey West earlier, where he was the truck driver, and then he shows up in the Mod Squad, of all things, about four years oh, later, right, right. in an episode right. where he's supposed to be, like, illiterate, he's a gangster, but he he has, like, an accent or whatever, and they, they're talking to him in the hospital, try to track down the gang or whatever, and they discover that he's illiterate, so, you know, being in the Mod Squad with all those heavy-handed, overly SJW kind of things that they always did, because that show's funny, it's actually kind of hard to watch nowadays, very preachy, you know, they, they have to go, and, oh, well, now we've got to find something to... to to teach him how to read the pre-Wally Amos there, famous Amos doing the Learn to Read series on PBS. <laughs> Anybody remembers that one? Yeah, that yeah. Funny in itself, a cookie maker doing that. But, uh, you know, they, they had to go and make him more whatever, you know, bring back to his social whatever, because, you know, the, the big theory was that, you know, anybody that's bad is bad because they're disadvantaged, which, you know, it's mostly a load of shit, but nonetheless. Uh, anyway, so he was in that, which was a really strange role, if you think about it. Then he shows up in Mission Impossible as yes. basically a hitman, if I remember it properly. It was one of those season six episodes with when Lily George was running it, and they had a couple of people flipping back and forth. Then he shows up not too long afterwards, because you know, he did Ironside after that. He did Junior Bonner, like you mentioned. Boom, here comes Walking Tall, and all of a sudden the guy is known everywhere. Of all people, Leif Garrett is in this in a bit part. And who produced this thing? I, I looked at it, and I'm like, who the hell is this? Is this Buford Pusser put in this? Because it's like a BCP production? Nope. Bing Crosby Productions. So somehow right, right. Bing Crosby got involved with Cinerama 
and pulled in Joe Don Baker and the up-and-coming Leif Garrett, who would soon become a sort of bubblegum idol for the teens later in the 70s, and puts them in this dark, supposed biopic of this Texas guy who became the sheriff of this town and tried to clean shit up. Kind of like in the late 80s, early 90s, when they had that thing fictionalized, but kind of just overblown, partly true, a lot of bullshit. Think about Joe Clark, the guy from the East Side Ghosts principal. Mm. They tried to clean up the school. What was that? Stand By Me. Same idea. It was like a stand-by me of the 70s, but well, obviously darker and more well, violent. I don't want to jump in here, but uh, the thing was, there, Buford Pusser, or Pusser, whichever, he existed. And so this was an actual bio. Yeah, of course, embellished. But yeah, and bought. But the thing was, and here's the really weird thing, but it's in between this film and the other two or three sequels, he was killed in real life, which is like really totally fucked up because he just stepped on too many toes. But let's go back to you now. Okay, so here's what I wrote about to get to the point. It's a dark cross between exploitation and a Death Wish Dirty Harry vigilante film. And while he's hardly given sufficient room to drop his usual grumpy charm in this film, it definitely made Joe Don Baker a star. It's a supposed yes. biopic on the level of HNIC, Joe Clark. Those of you who have seen the movie know what that means. Uh, and to be taken just about as seriously. Here, Don is Sheriff Buford T. Pusser, a former wrestler mind, this is true, whose objection to the sport and the metaphorical core of his character was that it was, quote, organized dishonesty. It was a system. You win when they let you win, you climb the ladder when they let you, you breathe when they feel like giving you air, I get fed up with other people running my life their way. So that was an actual speech early in the film. So unfortunately, he thinks things will be different in down home in rural Tennessee, where he promptly winds up with a living shit kicked out of him for making a scene at a whorehouse for cheating customers at craps. He goes to the cops, but they're as crooked as they usually are, so he pulls a down-home death wish and goes after the guys that did him with a big-ass homemade 2 by 4 This thing's enormous, by the way. He actually made it down at the lumber mill. This gets him arrested on a trumped-up robbery plea, and after rejecting a sleazy guilty plea with payback to the whorehouse worked out between the crooked sheriff, the crooked judge, and the crooked whorehouse, he goes on trial. He gets off, but straining all credulity, probably runs for sheriff. Yeah, good publicity there. Uh, so, <laughs> the guy film stuff that you usually expect from these kind of things kicks in about an hour in. When the sleazy sheriff gets pissed off at Pusser putting up campaign posters at the local soul music club, he tries to run him off the road and kill him, winds up dead. So Pusser wins the sheriff's spot and starts cleaning up the neighborhood. Of course, some people don't like his no-nonsense approach. He has to work under the same judge. He's betrayed by his own force. His wife is killed. He winds up in hospital again. At the end of the movie, after a decidedly screwed up Pusser, because he's in bandages like a mummy and shit, he rams his car through the front door of the whorehouse, pinning the cause of all his misery, the guy who's running the place, against the wall. The citizens then show their appreciation by taking the law into their own hands, throwing out the place's furniture, and therefore symbolically cleaning up all that southern small-town corruption in their own cells. Yeah, right. When the film starts up, you see there's a BCC Productions, which made me think was Pusser himself finding this bit of self-mythologizing, but the truth is even more unbelievable because it's Bing Crosby behind all this. And wait, is that a young Leif Garrett in all this? I guess it's a step up from his cross-dressing killer in Devil Times 5, or his great role in Skateboard the Movie, not to mention his 70s bubblegum tweeny pop music career. At least Don shows himself above Hicksporter stereotypes, with a few scenes where he shows he's down with the nascent black power movement. A very interesting movie. It's very powerful. This is the time where we've seen this kind of hard-hitting stuff entering into cinemas. You know, not quite exploitation, not quite bio-exploitation, but I think people didn't know what to make of it. And it did very well in the theaters, of course, drive-ins and down south, where the still alive at the time, Buford Passer, was uh, a name. How this would play in Trump's America, yeah. I don't know. Because here's, here's a real sober take on this. I don't know, because 
the corruption. He was against corruption. And he was against people who were corrupt legalities who had their hands and fingers into shit that had guys and henchmen. And he was against all that. And, mm-hmm. and so how this would play today, I don't know. I couldn't tell you. P- quite possibly it would be the whole manifest would be twisted for the uh, the Third Reich, uh, the fourth, excuse me, the Fourth Reich. <laughs> I think and, they'd be calling a, a lefty liberal cuck. Uh, what stupid shit they say? <laughs> I don't know, but they, they could very well turn turn this around and make it a pro thing for whatever. No, they were lefties, really. <laughs> uh, the Democrats are responsible for this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is some interesting people. You might recognize Rosemary Murphy. Of course, Ken Toby, yep. uh, from the original thing, is in this. I sat next to him once, a screaming, great little story there one day. Elizabeth Hartman, who did a lot of stage TV around that time. Noah Barry Jr. It's like not full of too many, which I think is to its advantage, not full of too many familiar faces. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of thing helps around this time period because if we see so many people, we've seen like Get Smart and, and you know Wicked Wanda or whatever on TV, and it's it's sort of like it takes you out of the moment, you know? Like uh, what's his name? Famous character, Dr. Milton. What? Jewish guy. Uh, I was watching something on Amazon Prime the other night. It was a. Uh, it was a. I keep thinking uh, Sabatsky. <laughs> no, not Sabatsky. Something or other. And uh, it was an early Chuck Norris movie that wasn't too bad. One with Jennifer O'Neill. It was one of his early ones. Mm. And it was actually decent. It was like every five minutes there was TV character actor mm. who I was like, holy shit, I've seen this guy in five million things back in the day. Anyway, what the point I'm trying to make is I think this movie benefits by not having too many of those mm-hmm. and having a supporting cast of not too recognizable character actors. So, interesting there. Next, we have... Well, next up, he went to Charlie Varick, yes. which is a Walter Matthau film, believe it or not. It's effectively a bit part for our man. He doesn't show up until 45 minutes into the movie and doesn't take up a hell of a lot of the screen time overall. This is another one where Joe Don really shows his presence and his ability to carry a film because he totally upstages the lead or anybody else in the film, even though he's barely in it. Matho, who had a brief run as you know grumpy detectives and such in films like The Laughing Policeman and the Taking of Pelham One Two Three, because everybody just thinks of him as a comedian, you know, even stuff like Hopscotch, you know, mm. what was the one with Jack Lemmon where they, he was trying to kill himself and Klaus Kinski's in it, Buddy oh, Buddy, you know, it's a very strange movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, basically he's a comedian, the Odd Couple and stuff like that, but. But here he's playing detectives and things like that. There's a very brief period where that's what he was known for in film. He's, quote-unquote, the last of the independents, who is a bank robber who runs afoul what apparently is the Chinese mob, given the one contact we're shown through the back of a dim sum place. Jodan is Molly, the ambiguously named, heavily hinted at being a homosexual hitman who's on his tail. He's a bundle of contradictions. He comes off as really intelligent, yet kind of down home at the same time. says, I didn't come 500 miles for the amusement of morons, he says at one point, with a sense of class and style, but with simple taste in food and sprucing up his suit and tie with cowboy hat and boots. He holds up in a whorehouse, but has zero interest, even disgust for sleeping with whores, or women per se, as it turns out, coming off as likable and calm, but flipping on a dime to murderous menace and violence. He's a more physical and active version of the sort of role like Horse Frank was playing in the Jerry Cotton 
actually traps that show up at midnight, effectively. And he's the only reason to really watch this film. I'm sorry. Mathel fans, I would direct you to the other films that I mentioned. You know, despite his comparative lack of screen time, this film's really all about Joe Don Baker. Oh, yeah. A uh, good, very interesting performance by Joe Don Baker in this. Uh, yeah. It's the kind of thing, like, I like to see... Yeah, I did a book where I interviewed character actors, and I like to see people who can take over a picture and they just like are in a very very little of it y'all mm-hmm. it's uh they don't have a lot of screen time and it's just like you remember them Charlie mm-hmm. Varick is in a, a bit of an enigma I I sort of on board with you about the movie because I don't know what this how to feel about it mm-hmm. because I don't think Matthew feel that this at all I think, if anything, it's probably... Yeah, he was he was the actor who excelled in comedic roles. If you want to see Walter Matthaus, like, probably darkest, it might be this, or it might be some of those early uh, Billy Wilder things where he's a really prick bastard. But the people tend to forget, like, the early Billy Wilder stuff, like the Jack Lemmon movie, The Apartment, things like that. A lot of these guys we, we are beholden to in our memories as... Brilliant comedic actors were really prick fucks in some of these movies. I mean, the 60s really, folks, you know, say what you will, but the 60s did some brilliant films. Tony Curtis, Burt Lancaster, Sweet Smell of Success, Seven Days, you know, I mean, stuff, just great, great stuff. This Don Siegel movie, and Don Siegel worked with Clint Eastwood around this time, so it's interesting, what are we going to get? I'm not quite sure Matha was successful enough to pull this off. I'm not quite sure what Siegel was going for, but our boy really stood out in this, and you know, more power to him, because he took an atypical role, and he made it his own. Mm-hmm. And like I said, it was very... It was ambiguous enough that you could not notice it if you chose to overlook it, but for the time, it was um, a little bit out there. It was kind of like when they had the... But less campy. Those two gay villains in the Bond film. Uh, Diamonds are forever. Yes, and the cruise ship, exactly. But anyway, so next up, after doing like the Streets of San Francisco and maybe one other role, he shows up in a Robert Klaus film, uh, the first of two that he does with him, I believe, Golden Needles. I remember this one from when I was a kid. I was very happy when finally it showed up in a more legit version. I got it off a bootleg from somebody from years ago. Now it is sort of out there, at least as a DVD-R type thing from Warner or somebody like that. Definitely worth looking into. I do enjoy this one. So right on top of this, none other than Robert Klaus, the American Kung Fu film director, who'd worked with everyone from Bruce Lee and Jim Kelly to Cynthia Rothrock, who, by the way, I did a good interview with years back on uh, Third Eye Cinema, taps a decidedly non-athletic Jodan Baker for the leading role in his latest opus, concerning a Chinese statue that serves as a how-to map for acupuncturists. Hilariously, as the opening narration tells us, it indicates seven forbidden acupuncture points which bring about extraordinary sexual vigor in youth or sudden and painful death. So in other words, people are killing each other over, wait for it, Viagra. So down home, Elizabeth Ashley, last seen in the Peter Fonda stinker in 92 in the Shade as the easy aging cheerleader, enlists Joe Don, who dons an oversized Popeye sailor's peacoat over one of those Chinese peasant shirts with the shirt sleeves hanging out, and plays a mean round of mahjong to make a grab for the statue from the evil Tong leader who's price gouging eBay flipper style, literally. Far from what you might expect, he does this about three seconds after getting a request, and coaxes the promise of sex out of Ashley as partial payment in the fastest, easiest 
fastest break and snatch job ever. Even when somebody dumps a bag of pissed off cobras on the floor, he just keeps running across the countertops and jumps out the front window. No worries. The rest of the film consists of Joe Don collecting his payment. They even throw a bit of Tom Jones business where they're having a somewhat uncouth dinner where they gorge themselves while making eyes at each other. Thereafter being chased by various players who want the statue for themselves. A bloated old and southern more or less cameos is a gambling hall, madam. There's a huge bar fight for no reason whatsoever. Our hero's not even involved. Joe Don attempts Elvis-style stage move karate on a bunch of kung fu extras, actually says, ah, so, to a high-kicking female Chinese government agent, and Jim Kelly shows up more than halfway through the film with a goofy stick-on mustache to make fun of Joe Don having a big belly. I'm not kidding. Then, Burgess Meredith shows up as a millionaire mob type who funds the whole operation, and we're supposed to find him threatening. (laughs) Best of all, Klaus even throws in a cheap homage to his most famous role, when Joe Don picks up a big-ass 2x4 to smash a cop car window for no good reason in slow-mo. So it was definitely deliberate. I mentioned before the fat Elvis connection. Joe Don looks his most 70s Elvis-esque here, complete with heavily lidded eyes and that omnipresent curled lip smirk. Always love this film. I'd say it ties with Mitchell as his all-around best film. This movie got heavily promoted television and mm-hmm. in theaters back in the day, prior to its release. It was present everywhere. You saw anything, Golden Needles, Golden Needles. And oddly enough, after its, its release, it all but disappeared off the face of the earth. Yes. Uh, which is true. Yes. Yeah, you, you were great. Uh, it, it's like, what the fuck happened here? There's a couple of movies that that happened to. For some bizarre, you know, Hot Potato. The, yeah. the next one that Klaus did with Jim Kelly. Yeah, yeah. It uh, has nothing to do with Klaus, I'm sure. Uh, it's just, nah. This is not too far after he worked with Bruce Lee, uh, the director. And, uh, you know, Joe Don is coming off of Walking Tall's uh, success. And he's got main building. His name is huge on the posters. Mm-hmm. He's well featured in the trailers. And it's entertaining as fuck. It's also a bit of a mess. Why? I can't fathom, because I just really don't know. But you know what? He does well. He does well in this. He, he's really good at, okay, look at his size, look at his, his visage, and yet he does well at, okay, this is the script. I'm going to do what it, I'm going to try to do what it asks of me. And he did really well in this. He's surrounded by oddballs. You know, Jim Kelly, we're not quite sure what was going on with Jim Kelly right after Enter the Dragon. He did, he would appear and disappear from a number of roles before disappearing for a number of years. That was on purpose, yes. I just met him and talked to him about that a little bit. Burgess Meredith is in this. Meredith has done some good work. Uh, this was serviceable. Elizabeth Ashley, I want to point out, was a Patty LaPoma for time. Big theater actress. She was huge into drugs. Huge, huge. And (laughs) they they wouldn't hire her for Broadway or off-Broadway. So Elizabeth Ashley, I believe she was in Notorious Windows, the Gordon Willis picture. I think one of the few things he's ever directed, if only. Uh, Used to be the DP for what he owned. She was like... Persona da Grada, you know, like she probably inhaled more blow than exists. <laughs> and she, yeah, we're talking big Broadway actress, major films, draw, major uh, shows, drama. Suddenly, she's doing karate movies. Um, <laughs> and I'm probably blowing half the cast because she had, like, stuff her nose. So she actually died an untimely death because rumor has it several reasons. So I don't want to be litigatious in this, but uh, 
Not so great. It's got a very familiar Lalo Schifrin score, which helps this damn thing because it's funny. <sighs> Lalo Schifrin scores can be the ultimate cheese. Yeah. At the same time, they can also help to propel a movie. But didn't this one have a lot of do 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 shit in it? I could swear that. It did, and mm. and 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 some of it was very. Was this why is this a hard movie to market? Because I'm like. Was Klaus aiming at, like, the TV audience for what? Because, you know, he should really should have been... Because Joe Don Baker, okay, he had TV appearances, but he did a couple of major starring films and a couple mm-hmm. of really interesting supporting roles in movies. He hadn't really been on TV in the last few years. So why, why have you, the guy who's composing the score do this ridiculous kind <laughs> of, you know, like, connection or homage to TV stuff? It's a bit of a... Interest. Uh, I would recommend people see it, though. You know, please track it down. It's a lovable mess. I always enjoyed the hell out of it. Yeah. But it is. It's a very much a TV movie. And that's actually where I saw it. You know, I wasn't old enough to see this in the theater. They had showed it once or twice on TV back who knows when in the 70s, and then pfft, that's it. Never again until I got that one off of iOffer or whatever the hell it was years ago, and then again when it came out more or less legitimately. But it was just persona non grata, if you will. It totally vanished for 30 years plus. Yeah, true. Mm-hmm. So, um, let's get anything else to say on that one. No. Next up, he shows up in Mitchell. Now, from the name, you wouldn't think much, but this probably is, unless you go with Walking Tall, this probably is the film of his career. This is one people know him for now, which was probably not the case back when, but it is very enjoyable in many respects. Basically, I consider this another career high point. Here he's a sloppy, blue-collar, beer-drinking, sort of low-rent detective of the local force. He gets called in on rich gun nut John Saxon, who guns down a nervous guy who broke into his house for undisclosed reasons and won't buy his story, attitude, or his superior's concerted push to get him to lay off. They put him on a no-wing case to tell Martin Balsam, a mafia-connected drug lord, as a way to keep him busy now in the picture, and he does, making such a pest of himself that the guy actually gives up and invites him in for a nice dinner, but he keeps circling back, going so far as to break in himself and lay down in the body tape to put the real story together. Meantime, Saxon sends hooker Linda Evans in her finest days to his hovel as a, quote, present, and this actually turns into a thing. Despite her sitting there reading his playboys and his dumping milk all over her, was this supposed to be Freudian? And picking up a six-pack of Schlitz with his toes in the sack before busting her over a big bag of weed and getting her thrown in the tank. Talk about grateful. He even gets an absurd Dr. John-style song that plays while they bawl. My, 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 Mitchell. Before you know it, both Balsam and Saxon are trying to put him on the payroll. He's doing desert four-wheeling and arguing with some obnoxious fat-faced kid who looks like Adam Rich and trying to dress up in the worst Kmart bedsheet pattern dress shirt ever produced before Balsam tries to make him complicit in a set-up drug deal. Funniest part is, if you look at things they write online or in a DVD case, he's supposed to be so abrasive or whatever, but he's actually a hell of a lot more likable, if tenacious and down-home, than your usual obsessive vigilante or cop you get in this kind of film throughout the 70s and 80s, uh, even to the 90s. He's got a sense of humor. Yeah, he's very low-rent and blue-collar, but abrasive? No. Definitely one of his best films. And as mentioned earlier, also one of the funniest mystery science send-ups ever. It's one of those rare films that works just as well straight as when it's mercilessly heckled. Both versions are great. No, I really like this movie. It's, I agree, it's one of his best leading roles. Andrew V. McLaughlin. Not anybody to snicker at. You know, the guy... Huge amount of work. Huge, huge, sorry. <laughs> I mean, you know, for way back in the days, damn, he did Man in the Vault. Freaking ton of westerns. 
which he became known for. Bandolero, The Undefeated, was actually pretty decent. Something Big, Cahill, U.S. Marshal. He did this in 75, and uh, he did some TV, but he didn't, you know, he kept like, I guess, for me, he kept trying to break through, break through, break through. More than just a journeyman, he did like fucking tons of TV. He did like 100 episodes of Gunsmoke. Almost 200 episodes of Have Gun, Will Travel with Perpetual Boozer, uh, Richard Boone. <laughs> but the Wild Geese is the thing that really put him over. Now, this thing here, uh, you got lots of interesting people here. It's almost like Eurocrime. Yes. Yeah, it's almost like Eurocrime. And you got, like, Marty Balsam in this. You got John Saxon. Mm-hmm. You got everyone's infrequent Mission Impossible co- uh, uh Harold J. Stone. Uh, the guy, the salt and pepper here in the, like, the uh, gray uh, temples. Merlin Olsen's uh, in it. Remember him? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, everybody's favorite bangable, bosomy bitch, Linda Evans. Looking good. It wasn't like Dynasty. She was actually hot back then. <laughs> I thought she looked good in Dynasty, but that's the mm. uh, The shoulder pads didn't do no, much for me. Marty Balsam, I already <laughs> mentioned. So, this is like a down-home U.S. exploitation picture infused with Eurocrime elements. And thing I did in research for this is that apparently they cut this a couple of times for re-releases. And one of the things they cut was a lot of the nudity, which I found interesting. But um, It's restored again. But at the time, so we're talking early 80s, you know, maybe TV airings or whatever, or cable, you saw a much different thing. Yeah. Next. And you can see the two different versions if you want, because Mystery Science obviously is not going to show the nudity. So that is the cut version that you're talking about. And then, of course, this new one that came out from, I guess, Warner Archives or whoever is back to normal again. So it's it's a it's not that much of a difference, but it's nice enough to appreciate both. And both versions stand up. So next up is a film that I have not seen since God knows when, but I remember seeing it a long time ago. Speed Trap, which had, of all people, Tyne Daly in it, and Richard Shackle and Robert Loggia, Lana Wood. These are names you'd recognize. Sadly not available since the days of VHS, so I've not seen this one since. I would love to see this come out on DVD or Blue. I can just picture how well the mouthy, uber-feminist Tyne Daly, later of Cagney and Lacey, would play off Joe Don's laid-back misogyny. Picture her in the Linda Evans role from Mitchell, and just you'll see why this would be great. Uh, it's... I did see this. It's uh, he was a private eye, private dick. Gosh, I I, I don't want to mislead anybody. It's a film I know I saw. I saw it in the theater. I don't have many clear uh, remembrances of this, and I did not have enough time to track down a copy. Yeah. But Lana Wood is in this, and for those that like Lana, I'm sure there's Lana Wood <laughs> specialty moments. Plenty O'Toole. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. So uh, next up. Another Robert Klaus film. It's a strange one. The Pack. There's really nobody else you'd recognize in it except for R.G. Armstrong, who was the, the evil sheriff in things like Race for the Devil. He popped up in a couple things. Usually as a sheriff or some sort of authority figure down south. You know, he's got like bushy red eyebrows and a mustache. Uh, Robert Klaus takes a break from his kung fu spectaculars for this typical 70s echo horror nature strikes back job. Joe Don is a little bit out of his depth in the role of, of all things, a marine biologist which plays almost no part into this film, which is about abandoned dogs forming their own society and going feral on visitors and residents of a small island. Of course, the island only has contact with the mainland once a week, and the one two-way radio antenna they have gets messed up in a storm just to build menace and the feeling of the victims being trapped. 
There's a message to those assholes who just abandon pets to the wild, let them fend for themselves or die, which gives a bit of uncomfortable pathos to the whole thing as well. But the bottom line is, it's just another grim siege film coming viral horror with a touch more melancholy than usual. It all gets more than a touch killer shrews, but far less tense and, dare I say it, less frightening than that earlier film. And James P. Roscoe P. Coltrane best pulled off what matches up to the Joe Don role in that film to far greater effect. I gotta say that. Joe Don's job never really comes into play. He's more than knowledgeable, but take no shit local who's in the process of building a bigger house for his family and winds up at least surviving by the film's end. It's no showcase for his particular charms. It's more of a look who showed up in this weird ensemble cult film than what I consider a Joe Don Baker film in all capitals. So what's your take on this one? Well, you know, this movie has, you know, mentioned R.G. Armstrong. A lot of you might say, who the fuck is that? He was like, not a Slim Pickens type. He was a really abrasive, he was really good at playing dark dark southern guy creepy eyes uh, yeah but you know the guy has a, an immense pedigree you know cat on the hot tin roof on broadway lots tons of gazillions of television appearances and westerns because what's he a western actor not really but because he fell into that pedigree he also did like face in the crowd Andy Griffith, Baby Doll, but uh, Major Dundee, El Dorado, and then over a period of time, he got stuck in westerns. But he also did a couple of our, as mentioned last last week, a couple of these uh, biker movies. Not as a biker, but as because he had a hard look. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Even stuff like J.W. Coop. Fuck, he was uh, he graduated to Face with the Devil. He was a sheriff. White Line Fever. You know, this kind of thing. So R.G. Armstrong is in this. Richard B. Scholl. Now, some of you might say, who the fuck is that? But Richard B. Scholl <laughs> was a very recognizable, uh, heavy-set character actor. Who, sort of like a a whining George Wendt for his time. You know, George Wendt for cheers. Yes. Uh, Richard B. Scholl was this guy who showed up on a live TV. He was like, ah, ah. Very much a whiner. And he's also in this. And so I think the film is hurt by its oddball supporting cast. It's like, hello. But still, it's an unusual film. It's horrific, in a way, in the CV of Joe Don Baker. Because it's like, so, you know, it's a horror picture type. Yeah. You know, this, this, this whole thing was very popular at the time. It started out with the Doberman Gang, Fred Astaire, etc., I believe. And then it kind of crossed over into the horror genre, which was a heist thing. Crossed over into the horror genre when everybody's running out of ideas. And it's like, well, let's have killer dogs and killer beers and killer grizzlies. William B. Gurler. Snakes. <laughs> he did a lot of those films. Yeah. <laughs> he did a lot of those things. So this is like an early version of that i would say possibly mm-hmm. i i don't know i i have problems with this thing or as as, yeah. as a uh, success so i mean they tried to do something with that. i i with the theme so i will admit that <laughs> yes next up there's a few more things that you know i'd like to see on dvd or blue but nothing to date so uh you know somebody out there get on the joe down back catalog there's a bunch of stuff that's probably worthy of seeing again like uh, to kill a cop which was a tv movie it's got <laughs> Of all people, Desi Arnaz Jr. in it, and Christine Belford, who would show up on things like Banachek and the Spider-Man TV show. Uh, I don't remember it that well. Yeah, I remember that. That wasn't bad. 
Ernest Tidyman was a writer on that. You know, those of you who know crime fiction at that time. So, ah, sure. And then he does actually another one of Ernest Tidyman, Power, which was basically a Jimmy Hoffa TV picture. I vaguely remember seeing that when I was a kid, but you know, a little bit boring for my taste at that point because I was pretty young. So, anything you want to say about those before we move on to the infamous 1983 effort for Graydon Clark? No, oh, there was two of them, weren't there? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So he does Joysticks, which was a film with. A uh, bunch of nobodies in it except for Joe Don Baker. Uh, <laughs> uh, Graydon Clark, cult film director of any number of biker films, a few black exploiters like the entertainingly raw Black Shampoo. We did a black exploitation show a couple seasons back. The quirky Martin Landau sci fi horror without warning, and the unforgettable Satan's cheerleaders switches gears for this very 80s teen comedy revolving around a video game parlor. The kids who frequent it, and authority figure Joe Don's attempt to shut it down. It's utterly ridiculous and completely unbelievable, even by 80s teen sex comedy standards, you know, where the nerds have to find a way to get laid or win the battle of the bands or raise money to save the local surf shop or what have you because it's an mm. arcade without drug dealers hanging around all day or trying to butt in with stacks of quarters here they just cheer the players on like they've accomplished something great by scoring big or hitting high levels and there's a back room that the hero uses to get laid by girls who are sexually excited by rounds of Pac-Man and they hold an after hours video arcade lingerie party where all the girls dress in old lady slips seriously oh and there's this group of weirdos that amount to a clueless old man's idea of what a punk rocker looks and act like called the Vidiots, who ride these little kid motor scooters and have this weird locomotive walk they do while making Pac-Man noises. And their leader, King Vidiot, is used to take down the kids and let Joe Don shut the place down to his own ends. It's really bad, which of course makes it highly entertaining in a weird way. Of course, you do get many of the usual tropes of the genre. Young girls showing their tits, the nerd character gets put in all sorts of embarrassing situations, the fat, sloppy video game repairman who belches and farts a lot, a <laughs> baddie who runs around in drag, the central quote-unquote drama about saving the arcade, Jodan's spoiled daughter trying to get in our hero's pants, and his wife actually screwing both the fat, sloppy guy and the nerd, and a guy who looks and acts like Curly Howard for no reason whatsoever. Plus, there's a lengthy town hall meeting where the crusade against the evils of video games is debated rather stupidly, and a Rocky-style training montage where a hero is prepped to win at video games. Best and most loaded line of the film, Joe Don is trying to recruit King Vidya at his office. You and me, we both have something in common. You know what that is? We both like to hang out in public bathrooms? <laughs> I guess if you think films like Splits or Screwballs were the pinnacle of the genre, you might not find joysticks quite so bizarre an entry as it actually is. But the bottom line is this one's so screwed up and wrong-headed on every level, it's actually kind of great. Needless to say, not a high point in the man's career, but it's hilarious that it's a relatively high-profile entry insane. So what's your take? <laughs> oh, God, I, I, I always thought Graydon Clark was immensely talented. The guy... The guy could make movies in 15 days or less and have a, a name cast member on set for three days because that's all he could afford and manage to edit his scenes into the majority of the film. Yeah. Graham Clark's like really underrated for like that kind of shit. He has a couple of good films in his, in his CV, in his credits. This is kind of the movie for people who are older and may have gotten a blowjob while they were playing pinball back in the 80s. <laughs> you know, like, ha ha. But um, it, it never happened to me. Uh, ski ball, however, is different. But, uh, no, seriously, though. Oh, is that cork again? So, seriously, though. Uh, it's a, I think it's an enjoyable film. It's not 
Yeah, you know, Joe Don's showing up. I, I think he also is another Graydon Clark pitch called yes, Echo this time, which actually is a lot more fun. But then... So then he shows up in something that I have not seen, kind of on purpose, called The Natural, where he's playing uh, basically Babe Ruth, but they call him the Whammer. You know, more of a drama, I guess. I don't know if there's anything you want to say about that before we get to the next Graydon Clark film with him. I, I do, I do want to say something about this. Of all things, and I am not the world's biggest sports fan, of all things, this is a really fucking good movie. I, I am surprised how good it was when I first saw it. And I'm shocked how good it plays years later. Robert Redford is just like a mysterious dude. And he can really play baseball. I, I fucking can't stand baseball. Unless, you know, like, <laughs> if the Yankees... No, like, I, I, I grew up in Brooklyn, so I like the Yankees. They're from Bronx. Go figure. I can't stand the Mets. They suck. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, because Mets fans are kind of like fucking, I don't know, Trump people. I like, still remember Uncle Floyd doing that song, well, you don't care about the Mets. And they're like... <laughs> his show back when. Yeah, yeah. I um, mean, if you ask Lou, I think my Matt fans like fucking Trump fanatics. They're like, Yankees suck, I will fucking cut your throat. Like, okay. You're like Jets fans. Calm, yeah, yeah, it's like, <laughs> calm down, dude. Yeah. Well, fucking Yankees suck. Have you looked how many World Series this Yankee wins? And how many World Series that my Mets Exactly. Rednecks that come to the place with, to root for a losing team and get really, really drunk and violent. That's uh, pretty much it. Anyway, so... <laughs> the equivalent of football fans so, in England. The Natural is just like supernaturally tinged film. And it's it's sweet. It's it's actually almost akin to that Kevin... Oh, sweet. Uh, what is that? Field Which of Dreams? Which is not bad also. I mean, if there's two sports fans... Uh, sorry. Two sports films, I could say... I watched in my life, and I th- didn't think they were terrible. And maybe I actually have some merit. It's this one and that. Uh, yeah, Field the Dreams. Bradford's amazingly good in this. And, uh, yeah, Joe Don Baker is like Babe Ruth. Uh, but for those of you who don't like this, this films of this ilk, I could, all I can really say is, no, it's not horrible. So next up, he does another one for Graydon, which was uh, Final Justice, where he plays Deputy Sheriff Thomas Jefferson Geronimo III. It's actually an Italian film, believe it or not, with Rosanna Brazzi, my pal Ventitino Ventanini in it, people, someone named Patricia Pellegrino, who's not too hard on the eyes. So after two Robert Klaus films, Joe Don finds himself tapped for a second time by Graydon Clark, this time in a more serious role as a cowboy-style sheriff. Well, actually, he's only a deputy who gets involved in one of those 48-hour-slash-midnight-run-slash-death journeys situations where he has to transport mobster Ventitino Ventini back home to Italy. Of course, it's all a setup. There's some business made over Joe Don being from Texas and supposedly part of Apache, but it really doesn't impact anything except it justifies dressing like a cross between McLeod and John Travolta in Urban Cowboy throughout. He gets a relatively pretty Italian psychic, sort of a less attractive cross between Stephanie Kramer and Connie Selica, but she's kind of grumpy at having a co-star with a beefy aging Joe Don. There are plenty of scenic Italian locations. The two of them make a scene at the Venice Carnival. They visit a nice old chapel. There's some water action. And a bunch of locals start a bar fight at some old stone building that doubles as a half-ass strip joint. Mystery Science set this one up too, but it was no Mitchell, that's for sure. And the edits really hit this one hard. It's pretty short and disjointed. And the original, even though it's still not the most straightforward plot in the world, is reasonably heavy on the TNA. And it shows Vintatini to be a nipple-pinching roast sex sadist, which doesn't really come across in their version at all. It's hard to believe this came barely a decade on from Walking Tall, Golden Needles, and Mitchell. Joe Don actually looks kind of ill in this one. So what's your take? Uh, <laughs> yeah, seriously. 
He takes him and squeezes. I'm like, what the hell? Oh, right. Is there something wrong with that? No, <laughs> but, no I mean, this was sadistic. It wasn't pleasurable. I was... Okay. I don't remember... <laughs> There's a difference, folks. Oh, go ahead. Uh, yes, this is a non-committal version of weird scenes. Uh, I remember... I don't remember the movie, folks. I'm sorry, but uh, I remember Graydon Clark talking about this in his autobiography, which I actually got from him online. And it, it, this is another one of those things where, like, he paid Joe Don Baker to show up for X amount of days and kind of worked the movie around him. I think he knew he was having some trouble. He was having to deal with his producers at the time who were enforcing him, Graydon Clark, the director, to use local crews where he really wanted to bring in his guys and it got to the point where Joe Don Baker's time was up and he goes back to the States or wherever and Graham Clark has to finish the movie and he's like wow I really have to assemble a final cut from this mess so it's probably why it looks disjointed and it's probably why maybe some scenes or footage with character actors or the supporting cast are more amplified and made Little little tidbits that these guys got to do to catch your notice because we didn't have much of a movie here, so we have yeah. to like show up uh, everything else. So that's all about uh, I can say about Final Justice. So uh, 1985, then same year, he shows up in Fletch, uh, mm-hmm. another half-assed Chevy Chase vehicle, which unlike the Vacation series, didn't resonate with enough people in the Meredith series. Though I believe there was a poorly received sequel. I remember my father really liked this one. It first hit HBO. I God knows why. Despite getting top billing after Chase, Joe Don doesn't show up until about 45 minutes in once again, as the pissed-off police commissioner works in a Trumpian by way of G. Gordon Liddy-esque, utter disregard for the rule of law and public oversight, planting evidence on the guy, shoving him up against the wall of photos as evidence that Chase put up a fight, throwing him in a jail cell, threatening to shoot him to death, and fixing so it looks like he tried to stab Joe Don, you know, a typical megalomaniac right-wing type. So this all takes up less than 10 minutes of the running time, and he disappears until the final five minutes, where he turns out to be part of the whole double cross that the whole film revolved around. They must have had the man for a day's worth of filming or less. What a piece of shit. Chase is always an asshole, no matter what the decade, role, or show appearance, and the film was just fucking torture to sit through, even on high speed. I mean, it was painful to watch this thing again for the show. Do yourself a favor. If Chase is in the credits of any movie, pass. There has to be something better on. What's up? What's your take? Ouch. Uh, well, I don't know. I, I, I like the National Lampoon vacation movies. The only good part is when they walk in the door on Christmas vacation and immediately start talking about their bowel movements. And <laughs> I'm like, well, yeah, that reminds me of some relatives of mine. Well, well, there's that. And there's the highly quotable, you know, when they go to the first one, they go to Grand Canyon. Oh, there we go. Okay, get get in the car. The grandmother on the roof? I, and, of course, Beverly <laughs> D'Angelo's new scenes. I mean, hey, you know, well, yeah, well. But that's on her. It's not doing Chase. <laughs> yeah, but she was in his movie. Yeah, that's true. It's funny thing was, Chevy Chase was a very big presence in Saturday Night Live, and and he worked. He did, you know, it's like like every one of these guys back in the day. I mean, not all of it was. Uh, not all of it was great. You know, some of your work, it's live TV. Some of it works, some of it doesn't work. You know, the only guy that can consecutively be fucking funny was Eddie Murphy. Yes. Even the great John Belushi 
was sometimes a mess. Oh, that Samurai but, Butcher thing sucked. I don't know why everybody loves that so much. Yeah, yeah, but no, I, I Eddie Murphy was the guy. Yeah, uh, that's true. But Mr. Robinson. <laughs> yeah, that that amongst many others. Yeah, but I, I do like the National Lampoon movies. Fletch was another thing. It was based on like sort of hard hitting kind of thing that was out there, and I didn't like it. And it actually, this was like the big downfall of Chase, which lasted decades. Up <laughs> <laughs> uh, to the point where fucking John Carpenter worked with him of all people. Memoirs of Invisible Man. Oh my god, I blocked that film out. You're right. <laughs> yeah. it, wow. almost, it almost or partially indebted itself to John Carpenter's career collapse. Yes, that's uh, true. Because around that time he started seeing Chevy Chase, the prick. And it could have been a reflection of his own persona. Yeah. Anyway, our boy Joe Don is in this, not making much of a, a, a factual appearance, and pretty much, as you mentioned, he flits in and out of this thing. And I don't know, but there was an even worse sequel. Yes. And I, I believe there's even there was a third Fletch, maybe with somebody else in it. That's quite possible. Yeah. Yeah. Which leads about uh, two years later, though. Jordan Baker makes a comeback. Yes. He, he, basically, you see that his career is already dovetailing. And yet, in 1987, bam, there he is, and he kind of makes a, a short run being in Bond films as sort of a regular. Not the same character, though. Living Daylights, which is a Timothy Dalton film. This is the one with Mariam Diabo, which, back in the day, I did not like as much as its sequel. Ever since, I think it's fantastic compared to its sequel. First of three Jodan Baker appearances in a Bond film. He's a cricket arms dealer in cahoots with the commies. We talked this one twice in our original Bond show and again during our revisiting yes. Bond show, which came after we had, me and my wife being, worked our way through the recent Bond series box set on Blue, so there's no real point in digging into this one too much here. Many claim that, like I mentioned, License to Kill was the better of two Dalton Bonds, but I found we really enjoyed this one for all its faults far more than that rather earthy, you know, Bond versus drug dealers entry, which didn't feel much like a Bond film at all. I mean, this one does, and therefore it holds up a lot better, and it doesn't hurt that you get two guys that I like a lot in the cast, being Shogun's John Reese davies and, of course, our boy Joe Don. So, what's your take on this one? Oh, you know, it's, it's, it's an enjoyable Bond movie. I do and still appreciate the second one, which you dislike, but that's, hey, that's why we're here. He plays Brad Whitaker, but didn't he play Felix? Yes, Exodus? two different yes. roles, exactly. Brad Whitaker's a one-shot deal as a baddie, and then next time he comes back as a yeah. good guy. So. Yeah, he played Brad Whitaker, so, I mean, were we to presume... At some point, that Brad Whitaker may have been a uh, pseudonym for Felix Leiter. I wouldn't say so. He's supposed to be a bad guy in this one. He's like in cahoots with the arm dealers. Yeah, but so was so was Robbie Coltrane. Remember? Yes. And Robbie was in like five of these fucking things, maybe six. Yes. And and he was a real like you know jovial but dick prick bastard of a Russian arms dealer. And then by the last two entries that he appeared in of the uh, Boston ones. He was like like this really like Palsy Wells guy you could trust. He, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Palsy Wells, all right, whatever. Uh, I I have problems with the Living Daylights. The biggest yeah. thing was the the girl. Uh, um, yeah, she's questionable. She, yeah, and you don't feel like Diablo's her sister's better. Well, you know, it's funny. I I did a I did a your favorite convention show with yes. Luciana Paluzzi and this Diablo. And she's like, can I bring my sister? And her sister was in the better film. Yes. And so I was like, yeah, okay. (laughs) (laughs) 
she? Or you could bring your sister here. Your better sister's a better actress. And she's better looking. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's a funny thing because Luciana Paluzzi looked really fucking great. I think it's on YouTube, folks. So uh, it might still be. So that was an interesting moment. Like, yeah, you could bring your sister. I think your sister's a better actress. Uh, um, <laughs> I like these Dalton movies. And, and, you know, we, we talked about this a lot. We spoke of this where, you know, did Dalton get fucked? Was his, was his, his interpretation too close to Fleming? You know, they obviously liked what they, what he did. And, but I think with the second picture, when, what's the first bond to get R rated? But you know what? Hey, these freaking Daniel Craig movies are violent. Oh, yeah. So, you know, what are we, what's going on here? So, enjoyable fun. Joe Don Baker makes his first appearance here in a Bond movie. After this, <laughs> he does, of all things, Leonard Part 6. Mm. But which the less said, the better, except that it's a Bill Cosby vehicle. And he's supposed to be some half-assed superhero, but it's a comedy. And, you know, I remember seeing it back when it first came on HBO, probably around 88 or so. And I just remember that the critics tore this one three new assholes, even at the time. Even before Bill Cosby's name became disgraced, this film was considered like the pinnacle of, oh my god, what the fuck did he just do and why? Uh, it was that bad. Now, does it really that horrible these days? I don't know, because I didn't bother to watch it again. But it was atrocious when I saw it. I actually had my mouth hanging open when I saw parts of it back when. And I'm like, what the fuck was this guy thinking? Seriously? So, I don't know. I mean, nowadays I can sit there and watch the Masters of the Universe movie that Dolph Lundgren did and laugh and enjoy parts of it. And I could sit there and watch the first two Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movies and say, wow, these are horrible, but I'm kind of enjoying parts of them. So I might have a different take on it, you know, if I had sat back and said, you know what, I'm going to sit there and watch this Bill Cosby movie because Joe Don's in it. But I just did not take that leap. I couldn't get myself to do it. So do you have any take on this one at all? Yeah, one day we should do a show like the worst fucking movies ever made. Yes. <laughs> I watched five minutes of this. I, 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 I'm not exaggerating. I kid, I kid you not, folks. I, it was terrible. Yeah, that's what terrible. happened. That's what I remember. I, I saw I, it on HBO and my mouth was hanging up. I'm like, what the fuck is this? And I'm like, all right, I got to flip through this. You know, I, I don't know if I fast forwarded from a VHS tape or if I just walked away and came back later. But it was like, yeah, it was really bad. But go ahead. I, I don't know if it was due to the cast and crew or due to the director or due to whatever. I got the feeling that major drugs were consumed on this film. <laughs> because, no, no, really, seriously, here's my take. Really dry-looking bad movies. Yeah. Really dry, like Ishtar. Remember yes. Ishtar? Yes, I do. Really dry-looking bad movies. It's L.A. May, I believe. Yeah, you, know, you got like Dustin Hoffman and was it Warren Beatty? Yep. And I saw that in in the big theater. Like movies without ambiance, movies without a joke, action, anything. Just like people saying the lines. I'm just thinking, wow, huge drugs are being, huge amounts of drugs are being induced. <laughs> because I'm like, what is going on here? Like it's a mess. At Leonard Part Six. Yeah, who's was that like Della Reese is Medusa? I, I was like, what the hell? But yeah, go yeah. ahead. Uh, since you mentioned it, let me take a look. Okay. Gloria Foster. <laughs> she reminded me of Della Reese from my memories, but go ahead. <laughs> well, you know, I, but the pedigree here is John DeBont was a cinematographer. He was a DP. Yeah, his best fucking movie was Speed. Bar none. I mean, that's a great picture. You know, we I mentioned this before. Some guys make great movies. You know. And, and Speed was great. Paul Whelan, again, I mentioned this earlier tonight, another guy who was prolific in TV, 
Tom Courtney is in this thing. Wow. My God. <laughs> yeah. The precipitous fall that is. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it, it's sort of like, I don't know. Maybe somebody said, hey, Bill, you want to keep buying these drugs you're uh, drugging girls with? You need to make more money by making shitty movies. <laughs> so uh, we're not condoning that, people, please. My God. We don't want to be banned off radio, TV, uh, internet. But it's probably came up. It's like, Bill, you know, his agent said, Bill, these these, uh, these fucking drugs, you're drug, drugging the girls with, you know. <laughs> they cost money. Really? Yeah, really. Oh, what should I do? Well, there's a really shitty script out there. And you're going to play you're gonna play a secret agent who's retired to Nick Snyderburn. Jerusalem? Yeah. But just think, with the money from this fucking piece of shit, <laughs> drug more girls. Yeah. Really? Yeah. What about my wife? Mind your fucking wife's a lesbian anyway, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, this is what happened. No stars. That's all I remember. Across the board, any critic you looked at, any newspaper you looked at, it was slammed. I mean, I've was never that seen... Funny? That was funny, right? I've yeah, never seen funny. a film slammed like this. It's unbelievable. <laughs> So again, I did not. I, was, I, I wasn't that brave to take another dive into those waters. <laughs> uh, so that's why our show is infamous. That's <laughs> uh, he does a couple other things, and then winds up Carol O'Connor, who was Archie Bunker, was obviously trying to break out of his typecasting as this old bigot by showing up in in the heat of the night, where he's essentially an old bigoted sheriff who's kind of getting over it. With I think in the movie with Sidney Poitier was his sidekick. I forget who it was in the show, but you know he's got a black sidekick, his old southern type. Oh, uh, uh, was it Howard, Howard Rollins? Maybe might yeah. be. Yeah, the show was not bad. You know, the movie was probably better, but again, not really my kind of thing. But nonetheless, he was getting old at the time, so he had had some heart issues or whatever. He had to take a couple episodes, maybe a season off. And so Joe Don stepped in, and it was not a bad idea. You know, they're kind of, Carol Connor's not a down-home kind of guy, even though he played it. But, you know, it does fit to throw Joe Don in there. I, I can see the thinking. Again, I didn't really watch these. I wasn't a big fan of the show, but I saw a couple of episodes. They weren't bad, but whatever. But he was there for a good five or six episodes. He shows up in a film you'll probably want to talk about that I was not a huge fan of either, which was Cape Fear. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I like Martin Scorsese a lot, and, and uh, sometimes he does, like, strange movies. <laughs> he really does. Martin Scorsese is not who you think he is. And and as far as a director, filmmaker, his his mind is somewhere else. Uh, I could do, I would love to do a show on Scorsese because, yeah, I just watched it Departed again. I'm like, wow, it's fucked up. <laughs> and one of the best things he did is that thing with Ray Liotta, coke sniffing, well, most Scorsese movies has that. Coke sniffing, like, drug lord guy with the Nero or everybody else. Yeah. Uh, was that Goodfellas? Maybe. Might be, uh, yeah, yeah good fellow. Cape Fear is like, whoa. So there was there was an original Cape Fear. Uh, it's one of the few Scorsese movies, actually a remake. Robert, Robert Mitchum, Charles Lawton. Yes, that Charles Lawton. <laughs> Spartacus and theater director and actor and the ball vivant and pedophile and other things. Yeah, I was going to say, in between banging young boys, I was waiting to interrupt you with that one. <laughs> and, 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 <laughs> yes, I, I threw that out there. And an alleged husband of Elsa Lanchester, who nobody will want to fuck. <laughs> so, um, that's it. Yeah, she was his beard. I, well, yeah, what was going on with that? Anyway, uh, Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise. Oh, okay. 
John Travolta and anybody. <laughs> hey, I like John Travolta. I like, I like Tom Cruise. Now, come on, you like Tom Cruise too? So let's not go there. Um, so I don't mind Tom Cruise, uh, but you know, he is what he is. Yeah. <laughs> so Escape Fear is like a remake of that movie, and yet it's like, okay, it's 1990, 91. How far can we push this? So they send Robert De Niro to a weight trainer, body sculpt him like no tomorrow. Nick Nolte, when he could still speak with a normal voice before <laughs> like the cigarette and whiskey burned it out. Jessica Lange, when she was still proto bangable. Robert Mitchum and Gregory Peck, who were the original stars of the original film, are in this. And, you know, Gregory fucking Peck. Wow. And so, how does this come? It comes out to be really weird, unlikable film. It touches upon very very dark things and I didn't like the original by Charles Lawton because I was like hey I don't care if it's black and white it's a dark fucking twisted movie there might be a lot of people who think it's prototypical thriller and now you're speaking very seriously and, and cautiously about this the De Niro one is just by Scorsese and I just finished saying that I like a lot of Scorsese movies this is really too much and yeah. and it's uh, to the point where it got accolades and it's a very very well made film it's also like a lot of Scorsese films you know you mentioned us a couple of shows when we see things that it, afterwards it makes us want to take a really cleansing shower yeah 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 and it's sort of like yeah yeah do you remember that band? I forget the name of them, but they did a song called "Detachable Penis" that was basically a riff on Scorsese films. And yeah, it's just yeah. this guy ranting through the whole thing, like he's in a Scorsese film in a script. Yeah, That's how I, I feel about the guy. That's exactly how I feel about Martin Scorsese. I'm sorry, I was never a fan. I mean, not that he's not a good director. It's not like, oh, this guy's horrible. He sucks. He can't do a job. He can do a job, all right, but he does a job on you, and I don't like where he takes me. So therefore. I refuse to kind of... I mean, I've seen a lot of his films, but I refuse to really kind of celebrate him, if, if you will. So, I, yeah. Yeah, I get, I get what you're getting at. I, I still think he's, like, an amazing filmmaker. But, yeah, he's taking you for a ride. Like, well, I was just saying, I just... I revisited The uh, the part, and which is actually a, one of a few Scorsese remakes, including this film, of Infernal Affairs, a Johnny Toe movie. Chinese film and I really liked Infernal Affairs and by the end of Infernal Affairs I was like oh that's fucked up <laughs> so Scorsese remade this movie and made an ending that had so many fucked up parts to it the whole last hour was like that's really fucked up yeah so <laughs> oh and um, I remember the name of the band King Missile King Missile King Missile yes yep. King <laughs> Missile whatever happened to King Missile God knows but Detachable Penis will live on yeah, uh, please, take on Scorsese don't please don't detach my penis. I need it right now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but <laughs> anyway, so next up, probably the, the another one that you might want to talk about. Big, huge thing among hipsters and slackers of that era was Reality Bites. So, did you want to say anything about that one? Yeah, yeah, it's a slacker thingy. Uh, I don't remember anything about it. I'm sorry. Yeah, I did not care for it when it came out. I never saw the big deal. It was kind of like Heather's, where I remember seeing that one a couple times. I didn't even give that another chance recently. I'm like, 
what was the big deal about here? Why? But Reality Bites was a little worse, let's put it that way. At least Heather's had that kind of outsider goth girl meets up with an insane person who seems to be cool on the surface and plots against the school kind of a thing. I understand where they were going with that. I didn't like where it wound up going at the end because it, in a way, kind of condemns anybody that's an outsider and makes them puts them in with that whole Columbine type thing, which is before Columbine. Yeah, but, but this was part of the course. At this time period, there were a lot of movies like this. There were quite a few films with this subject matter. And Reality Bites is more of a slacker comedy, so it's not the same thing, but it's the same idea, where I never got why people liked it. Yeah, but it was sort of like a head-on collision between slackers and what's going on, mm. and it, it was just, well, uh, this was one of the pictures where it just didn't work, yeah. I, as far as I was concerned. Yeah. I think it was an early Ben Stiller one, too, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yeah, Ben Stiller, yeah. Next year, well, you know, we had that long hiatus that we had mentioned a couple times with the Bond show, where they were trying to retool the series entirely, because I don't want to blame it on Dalton, that's not fair at all, but the redirection they had done for the Bond series, where they tried to do it up in the face of AIDS and political correctness and all this bullshit, and make him a one-woman man, and bring him down to earth with, like, drug dealers, and whatever else they were doing, make it more realistic. At the time, that was not the right approach. I mean, nowadays, like you said, the Craig series is the same thing and worse, so people still love it, but at the time, it was, like, a little too far out there. It has admirers, but it wasn't really what was resonating with the general public, I guess. So they took a couple years off, and I think they were also kind of waiting because the guy they originally wanted when they, they gave the role to Dalton was Pierce Brosnan, who was still stuck in that damn Remington Steel contract. So here he is. Unfortunately, he's a little too old for the part at this point, but it still worked out. I did enjoy most of his films as Bond. So what I said here, and again, we had discussed these previously twice over, so I don't want to get too deep in either one of them, but after an infamous five-year death of the series, Bond was revived with the man they originally intended to cast post-view to a kill, which was Pierce Brosnan, who was hamstrung by his Remington Steel contract at that time, as I mentioned. Sadly, he was a bit older to be taken on the role, which doesn't start playing out till you hit Die Another Day seven or eight years on, but his first three films were quite good, and I would say a huge improvement over the absurdly PC feel of the Valtons. In both this and the next film, Joe Don is on the side of the Angels as CIA liaison, Jack Wade. Jack Wade. Um, yeah. Personally, I prefer his next two films, being Brosnan, over this one with the ridiculous Xena-inspired, literally ball-crushing baddie, Xenia on a top. Famke Jansen would be much more likable as Phoenix in the original trilogy of X-Men movies, but it's still one of the stronger entries post-Octopussy, and that's all I want to say about it here. Those who are interested can go back to either our original Bond show or our revisiting Bond shows for the rest of it. What's your take? <laughs> well, I mean, like, have you ever had your balls crushed by a really good massage therapist? <laughs> so, <laughs> so see... Now I know where your extra money goes. <laughs> There was a so, guy so, that used to change tires. This was his only job at this one mechanic we used to go to years and years ago. He was the tire man. He would pop the tires off and put them on. He could do it in like three seconds flat. Couldn't do anything else. That's all they kept him around for. I guess they felt sorry for him. And he would say, yeah, you know, Friday night, take a paycheck, you go over there, there's a massage part. There was a massage part on time at the time. Yeah, the, the, this girl's to take care of you, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, well, you know, it's, it's like that, you know, Z, Zeno was like, you know, like, you go to one, and I was like, yeah, it's okay, you go to two, it's like, yeah, the blowjob's great, you go to three, okay, the fuck is great, you go to the fourth one, it's like, wow, <laughs> you squeezed my balls, I shot it, like, for like 20 minutes, so, no, Zeno, <laughs> not that I've ever been, but Zeno, <laughs> Oh, wow. <laughs> the guy dies on the show. So Zena's like that, you know? Zena's like a very 
Uh, yeah, it's. I like this one. It's one of my favorites. I actually have watched this numerous times over the years. It's not a perfect Bond movie. I'm sorry, folks, I misspoke earlier because I said that uh, our boy was back as Felix Leiter. No, Jack Wade, which was like the Felix Leiter light. I don't know why they call him Felix Leiter. Very strange. Same basic character. Yeah, and I kind of remembered that they did, but I was wrong. I like this one a lot. It's probably one I would watch more than others. Yeah, I, I you know, thank you for describing so much the you know, your introduction to this. And Martin Campbell, you know. The guy who started out making Martin Campbell, the guy who started out making uh sexy British comedies back in the early seventies mm. suddenly became the go to guy for Bond reboots. I mean, fuck, who knew? <laughs> um, this stuff is good. Even the first Zorro movie with Ben Darris and Catherine Zeta-Jones. That's highly enjoyable. So he, he worked on this. I love how Jordan Baker shows up in this. Like, you know, this is the magic of this guy. It's the magic of the man we're talking about tonight. He shows up like he already knows Brosnan as Bond. Mm-hmm. He shows up like, hey, I'm here again. You know, how you doing? You know, he's got this thing worked out where he's like, you probably look at the script. I know this guy. I met this guy. I'm going to just lackadaisically with my southern ass show up and, hey, I'm CIA. I'm going to fucking help you out. I like that about him. And they did this for like two two more pictures, I believe. A lot of fun. A lot of fun. This guy is homespun and fun. I like this movie. Next up, he does probably another one you'd want to talk about. Again, I didn't really see the major appeal. Not that it wasn't a terrible movie, but it, it's like, why was it such a cultural touch point? Mars Attacks, where, again, he's got a bit part as uh, one of the kids' fathers. So, did you want to say anything about Mars Attacks? I did. You know, it revitalized Tom Jones' career, people. I want to preface this by saying, I love Tom Jones. Tom Jones rocks. I saw him like two years ago live. He's great. But, I'm hit or miss on Tim Burton movies. Yeah. Um, I thought this was a wow, it's really cool. Look at this fucking cast. Oh, the cast is amazing. Jack Nicholson, Chris yeah. Proston, Danny DeVito, Martin Short. Yeah. Sarah Jessica Parton, what a fucking nose. Michael <laughs> J. Fox, God bless him. Rod Steiger, yeah. Tom Jones, Lucas Haas, who the fuck is that? <clears throat> Jim Brown, blah, 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 blah. But, well, this movie was horrible. But <laughs> but the thing was, uh, what a mess. It's like, it's like, it's like, why was this so great? I don't understand. Okay, whatever. I don't know. I mean, of, of all the Tim Burton films, this is the one I really like the least. And I can't remember Joe Dunn. There's a lot of people in this movie. Mm-hmm. There's only one cool scene in this movie, and I think I watched it twice in my life. It's, you know, like, basically, folks, what's, what what this is, is that the Mars Attacks training cards, Tim Burton, who was, like, riding super high back around the, the mid-90s. Oh, yeah. They gave him a gazillion dollars, and they said, hey, hire whoever you want, make a movie based on these training cards. And Tim Burton was probably doing, I don't know, maybe he's just crazy. I'm going to say he's doing drugs, maybe he's just crazy. Close smoke catharsis, as AFI once said. <laughs> It's a yeah, thing. he hired every <laughs> single living actor in Hollywood to be in this terrible film. And there's only one cool thing. It's like when Tom Jones, of all people, starts singing, Not in use or want to be loved by anyone. Wow. <laughs> it's like, wow, okay. And, and like, 
the evasion is like diverted. So, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> so next up, he does the third and I believe last of his appearances for Bond, which was Tomorrow Never Dies. This is the one where they pay homage to the 90s Hong Kong cinema craze, and, and I feel it was improved greatly by the presence of Michelle Yeoh as a rival Chinese agent going after the same baddie. Yes, I had a big thing for Michelle Yeoh. The car chase in the parking garage particularly stands out, as does the motorbike sequence where they handcuffed together. Good stuff. It's probably still, and you, know, you won't agree, obviously, but I think it's my favorite of the Brosnans. Although I also really like Sophie Marceau's kinky baddie and The World Is Not Enough. So uh, that's all I'll say on this one. We, we spoke to it twice before. And I could not stand Terry Hatcher. So there you go. <laughs> What's your take? I th- yeah, I think a role is not enough is probably better. But, yeah, I had this terrible thing from Michelle. Yo. Yeah. And I met, I met Michelle with Jackie Chan back when they premiered Supercop. Oh, wow. it was, it's a long story, but it was amazing. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, this was the movie people don't know or don't recall or don't remember that they were th- considering a Bond spin-off yes. with her character. That's true. And and they tried to get her off the ground and never happened. She's a great ally. She, you know, they're acknowledging the big Hong Kong thing going on. Mm-hmm. And yet, Roger Spottiswood, who did some really good Australian films, really dropped a fucking ball on this. Jonathan Price is a terrible villain. He is. He's all namby pamby, but you get Vincent Chiavelli. Yeah, who's very good in this. Yes, I mean, yeah, I, I, okay, we spoke about this twice, but why not a third time? This guy, who was a unique-looking character actor with uh, facial deformity. What the hell was he in that? Fast Times at Ridgemont High, things like that. Always yeah, kind yeah, of a comedy yeah. actor, you know, whatever. And he shows I up in don't. this, and holy shit. He could deliver as being, you know, we talk about Walter Matthau, these comedy actors going really sinister. He's very understated, but fucking creepy as this kind of uh, assassin that's, uh, what do you want to call him, like a serial killer almost. He's really into, like, true, surgery. True. You know, so. true. Vincent Schiavelli in this movie. And I, I think it's it's mentioned quite often. Yeah, he, he was an actor with a, I don't want to say physical deformity, but he was unique looking. He has a great mini monologue in this movie mm-hmm. where he's like yes I'm a killer for hire I'm a serial killer but I don't like really doing it and it was really before Bond kills him it was a really unique moment in the whole canon uh, maybe even to, to this day until they find someone who can actually deliver like that this guy stopped the movie dead and delivered this thing now speaking to your Terry Hatcher thing I, I'm not a big fan of Terry Hatcher, but she had great tits and bomb fucked her. So, you know, all right. <laughs> <laughs> she looked good. She had a nice rock. You're exactly right, but I could not stand her ever. I couldn't I, stand her know, Lois and Clark, and I couldn't stand her here. Why, why didn't Bond fuck Judy Dench? I mean, God, there was like 20 <laughs> pictures there. I mean, I, I, I could easily see Daniel Craig say, like, you know what, Mom, fuck this shit. Let's get it on. <laughs> bond, bond, bond and the Guilf. I, I didn't see that movie, but it should have happened. You know what's funny about that? I mean, I have no things towards Gilson or anything like that. I would not even think about Judy Dench in that way. But you're right, because she has that kind of twinkle in her eye that suggests that she's not like the innocent old grandma by any standard. So yeah. I, can, I can see that happening in a weird way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Especially with Craig, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> I can see that. Yeah, see, see, I'm not alone. It's possible. 
So after this, he plays, of all people, Governor George Wallace in Birmingham. We love the governor, if you will. Uh, yeah, he was good. He was, no, he was good in there. He was good in there. And not too much of note after that, unless you really want to mention the Dukes of Hazard movie in 2005, which, uh, by the which the less said, the better. And that's kind of brings us to the present day. So anything else you want to say with Joe Don or any of these movies that he did afterwards? Uh, he, was, he had a uh, minor part in this really exceptional Matthew McConaughey movie called Mud, which I, I recommend people check it out. It's uh, it's indie. It's it's about life and you know where Joe Don started out. It's like life in the in the Midwest, Arkansas specifically, and Reese Witherspoon actually, who's pretty decent in this. Ty Sheridan, Sam, the late Sam Shepard, Sam Shepard, and Joe Don shows up here as. The king of the lowlifes. Actually, literally, his character is King Carver. I saw this twice because I like to punish myself <laughs> with bleak movies. And, you know, seriously, I think Matthew McConaughey is an amazing fucking actor. I really do. I mean, I, I, you just have to watch that True Detective series one again. I mean, this, this is creepy shit from that man. If you've not seen it, I highly recommend it, folks, and to you. I just always picture him in those ads going, yeah, yeah. Or that horrible thing he did with, what's her name, Jennifer Garner, the, uh, what the hell's the name of that? Something about too many brides or too many husbands or, basically he wouldn't get married ever. It was the bottom line. She's a big player. Terrible. But see True Detect Series 1, please. Him and Woody Harrelson, you would be, like, blown away. It's that good. Wow. Yes, it was just spoken. <laughs> that good. No. no and, and Matthew McConaughey has done a couple of things that I'm really like, fuck. Wow. And so Mud, uh, at the, the 2012, I believe it's the last thing we have for Joe Don Baker, is uh, Joe Don returning to his roots. But this time he's older and he's playing uh, he's playing that which he rebelled against at, in, in his heyday. You know, he's playing a criminal. He's playing an under underworld underlord guy so i believe he was like uh 76 when he made this joe dunn still looks good hopefully maybe he'll do the convention circuit usually people of his age of his ilk tend to do this as they get older you know make some cash and maybe actually maybe some of them it would be nice if some of them actually think i'd like to meet the fans before i die yeah yeah and maybe some of them do and so my hat's off to you, Joe Don Baker, for giving us a good run and for entertaining us and for being different, for being my, I guess my final take, and then we'll go back to you, is that for belying your presence and your your approach to actually show us something different from what we would expect. And I gotta say, you know, obviously there weren't a hell of a lot of movies that he was front and center in, but the yeah. fact that he, even in a very minor role, like I mentioned, The Honey West, or it wasn't as minor, but the Charlie Barrick thing, or in the Bond films, the guy always manages to stand out, and that says a lot. Yeah. And I don't mean stand out in a bad way. I mean, he's what you will remember. You walk away, oh yeah, that scene with Joe Don Baker. What the hell? Really? He was in it for two minutes. I'm like, Especially with Bond, like, you know, a two hour and 20 minute film or something. And. Right. I think that says a hell of a lot about the guy. He is not, I mean, just like the guy he played in Charlie Varick, he is not your typical down-home southern good old boy in that respect. I mean, he is, very much so. And yet, he's not a dumb cracker, if you will. You know, if you want to make it simplified and stereotypical. And like I mentioned, even with Walking Tall, about how 
one of the things about his character is he's hanging around the Soul Club. He's got a black, not psychic, but, you know, best friend that he makes a deputy when he becomes sheriff. He's very much cool with the nascent black power movement. This is not the kind of thing you would expect from somebody that's walking around, hey, boy, come on over here, I'll kick your ass, give you a whooping. You know, that that's not, it's, it's almost incongruous to put the two together. And yet, that's who he played. And I like to think that's who he was. I mean, the fact that he studied in New York, the fact that he is such a, I, I hate to say versatile, but definitely adaptable actor. You know, he's not just coming on doing a character every time. He can be something different if the role requires. That says a lot. The fact that he was able to be, and like I said, as I vaguely remember, some people were kind of hot for him. He was a sex symbol, and you look at the guy, he's like, okay, mm-hmm. he's got that Elvis smirk, you know, if you're really into that thing, because Elvis was still alive at that time. But he's heavy set. He's, you know, kind of down home. He's kind of, I don't know, I mean, you would not think of him as a traditional leading man, much less a sex symbol, and yet he was able to pull this off. What is that saying? I mean, I always think that says a lot for the guy and his abilities, and probably his personal charm because some of that you can't fake that you can't walk in there like Gregory Peck can't walk into a movie and suddenly learn to act he's always going to come off like that you know he's always a one note joke he's a whether you like him or not you know he's going to be playing Captain Ahab forever whereas Joe Don is not always the same character no matter what role you put him in you take any one of these movies he's not the same guy from movie to movie and yet you know he is in another respect he's himself and yet transplanted into role X, role Y, role Z, which is what the whole thing is supposed to be about. That's really what acting is supposed to be about. So I have a lot of respect for him. Even though he did not do a hell of a lot of movies, I always enjoyed him. And yes, I can laugh at him. I think Mitchell, the, the send-up that did, was fucking hilarious. And even to some extent, the one day for Final Justice wasn't terrible. But on the other hand, I also can take him totally seriously and say, yeah, you know, I really like this guy, and I would love to meet him, like you mentioned, if you ever did a convention circuit or something. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, thanks for joining us tonight. We hope you enjoyed our little drawing room chat on Joe Don Baker. Next time, I have not decided what we should do. Oh, let's do Eddie Romero. Can you do that? Yeah, we can do that. Next time, uh, we'll be talking Eddie Romero and possibly some of the films of the Philippines, the horrors of the Philippines. Yeah. If you'd like to contact us here, comments, suggestions, or you're a filmmaker, musician, you'd like to join us on air, drop us a line on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash weirdscenes1, or our website, weirdscenes1.wordpress.com. We're also on Twitter at Weird Scenes 1. Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine brought to you by uh, me and Louis <laughs> Paul uh, <laughs> uh, on oh, the Big Pop oh, Online what's Network. What's up, buddy? What's up, buddy? <laughs> well, because it used to be always the Big Pop Online Network, which hasn't existed pretty much since oh, I level yeah, folded. Yeah. <laughs> I always say it, but it really doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, yeah. You and Louis Paul. Louis Paul and Tox <laughs> Um th- Thank you all for listening. We, we hope you enjoyed the show. Actually, I truthfully, honestly, am having a lot of fun with these uh, character actor shows. And uh, as we plan our following season after this, we might do a few more of these because yeah. a lot of fun, and, and it gives it gives credence to the positive work that these people have done. So, uh, trying to be serious here, I mean, we watch them, we like them, we recognize them, and sometimes we watch things because they were in them. Yes, and specifically and and there's like uh i'm not gonna see that oh he's in that maybe i'll watch that and we enjoyed it i hate to speak for both of us but i i would have to say yeah we enjoyed it for the most part and sometimes we were very surprised i was very surprised at the work done by these people so um we are speaking for both of us (laughs) uh i i do hope you are are enjoying these character actor things we're doing 
And uh, maybe next, as we discuss our, our plans for the following season, uh, not for the remainder of this one, but for the following one, we might even do more of these. I, you know, I don't know yeah. what's coming to mind. There might be a few people out there. There's probably many. But I like doing this because some people's work is undervalued, mm-hmm. and they'll be gone soon. I mean, you know, yeah. look, from Shatner to Fonda to Joe Don, we're, we're talking average 80-something age mm-hmm. range. And, and even go back to the other ones that we had done, like, you know, Barbara Steele, Bridget Bordeaux, yes. Klaus Kinski, yes. who's long gone. I mean, you know, these people are or would be getting on. And this is a long time ago now. This is a long and time ago. And all of them, yeah. as you have mentioned, you were right. I watch movies because they are in them in these cases. I don't always do that. I mean, I know we laughed hilariously when we saw something crappy like League of Extraordinary Gentlemen in the theater a long time ago, and some fool outside the theater was going, oh, Sean Connery's in this. Everything he's in is great, which is hilarious if you've seen his resume. He's done so much shit. But, you know, you have people like this where I might actually jump in just because they're in it and see, okay, well, how much of this yeah. is there in? Is yeah, it worthwhile? Exactly. And become a fan. So. Oh, my God. That would be... That that would be huge. The non-Bond films of Sean Connery. <laughs> Good end. I actually, yeah, actually, probably not as huge as you may think. Because I mean, if we, truth be told, we thought about this, probably not that big. We could do that if you want, because I do. I've seen a lot of his films, and some of them are really quirky. Zardoz. <laughs> Zardoz, the or, Anderson tapes, which is really brutal. How about what is it? The the out. Was it the Outlook? The Outline? The, the one where he was basically involved with that kiddie porn thing? Outlook. Ah, yes. Oh, Outline was the one with the moons. Yes, you're right. I always think about the one yeah, from the oh, 70s. Oh, the Offense. The, the offense. offense, thank you. I mean, the really offense. weird films he's done. So that's a thought. So yeah, maybe, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a thought. Yeah, yeah. So there you go. Maybe it's season like, seven will be <laughs> another character actor thing for Sean Connery. Who knows? Yeah, yeah, like, not the Sean Connery you knew. Exactly. Kind of like we did with Shatner. <laughs> yeah. So. All right. So uh, anyway, thank thank you for listening so much. We really do appreciate everything. And and as my co-host just said a few moments ago, please anybody who wants to contribute or is interested in us speaking with you, you know, just drop us a line. Yeah, very much so. And the same goes for as you often mention, anybody's interested in doing DVD commentaries or what have you. Uh, yeah. You know, not not to huck things too much, but hey, you know, we do this out of our own free will, if you will. So if there's something where we can get uh, an actual gig and spread the word and you know spread the thing about the podcast and help you guys out, give you some informed background and honest takes on people and their work, we're all for it. So you know, drop us a line. Yes, folks, we're not in it for the money, as Zappa said, and. Hey, you know what? Uh, okay, here's here's a weird statement we're going to close on, is that I'd rather listen to me and this guy who I do the show with doing a commentary on, I don't care if it's golden age porn or exploitation or Spanish horror, because we've seen a specific film a number of times, and we do research here as opposed to other shows, Not, but I'm not at all discounting all shows, but there are some shows out there. And as opposed to some people who are doing audio commentaries, like, that's not who that is. That's not who that is. <laughs> or, uh, you know, and, and, and to be frank, I, I'm a bit of a perf, but I, re- I was listening to one a couple of weeks ago, and some guy was talking about the pointy breasts of a actress. I'm like, yeah, but uh, if I did that in audio commentary, I would be shot, crucified, and hung up. <laughs> so I wouldn't do that. We're fun. 
we're, we're left of center, but we also know what we're doing, I hope, and we hope you enjoyed the scene of the show. Yes, so very thank much you so. again. Comment second, for sure. All right, so thanks for joining us, and uh, next time, Eddie Romero and the Horror of the Fall. at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Tune in to Third Eye Cinema, your source for in-depth discussion of cult cinema with a focus on film that matters. Cult, grindhouse, drive-in, independent, and underground film from the dawn of the talkies through the early 90s. This is a forum where we explore genre film and music from around the world, in-depth conversation and career analysis with directors, actors, and musicians, and open discussion on films that matter, those that fall outside the mainstream corporate film by boardroom committee. These are the problems of the auteur, the visionary, the dreamer, the outsider. None of that direct that passes for mainstream film these days. This is all about the glory days of independent cinema from all over the world. Any of the hotbeds of obscure, oddball, or generally wild cinema available on DVD from the dawn of the medium to this very day. Join us as we delve deep into the cinematic netherworld here on Third Eye Cinema. Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. What is At Eye Level? A reductio ad absurd and look at the headlines politics to pop culture, from the corporate to the individual. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, we take a not-so-serious look at the serious issues of the day. Whether it's politics, economics, social issues, music, or old movies and TV shows, we discuss everything the corporate media overlooks while making you laugh at the absurdity of it all. Hell, you've got to have a sense of humor about life. Just look at the headlines. So join me, Matt G. And me, Doc Savage. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern as we navigate the sea of trolls, talking points, and trickery. And try to figure out a way to be there when tomorrow comes. At eye level, bringing more to you. Only on the Big Papa Network, on Blog Talk Radio. (laughs) 
Join us on Tuesday nights at 6.30 Eastern for an exploration of the many roads and methods which promise to lead us to the ultimate answer, a higher purpose, the meaning of life. I'm just like a lot of you, a middle-aged mom with piles of laundry and a meditation practice. I've been down many roads to get where I am today, and my journey is far from finished. But I'd like to share my experience and hard-earned wisdom with you. So what is it about women and spirituality? It seems like we're always the first to try out something new. Christianity was spread in large part by wealthy women. And where would Uncle Al be without a scarlet women? Who is by and far the largest audience of New Age alternative spirituality? What is it about us that always has us seeking? And why does it always seem that men tend to take over what we discover? Join us for a dialogue between two long-lost friends representing both the yin and yang aspects of the whole, each of whom have traveled multifarious paths all across the spectrum of spirituality, the dark side and the light, from the organized to the out of the way. This show is for all those frustrated in their quest who've been through various stops on the spectrum of spirituality and found them ultimately unfulfilling. Join us for some hard-earned lessons and thoughts on potential new directions and possible value in what inevitably fails in organized practice, but which may have some merit to the solo practitioner and fellow seekers of truth in this journey towards life. Moving Towards Life. Lessons in life and spirituality from an unconventional seeker. Bringing more to you only here on the Big Papa Online Network. On Blog Talk Radio. Thursday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Join us for Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell of Doc Savage, Lois Paul, myself. Discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. We'll be covering classic films, shows, musicians, and literature of the past, with an eye towards what new visions may still arise from the soullessly derivative mire of our modern age. Tune in turn on and take a step outside the mainstream as we dig deep into the rich vein of cult cinema, music, and television right here on Weird Seats Inside the Gold Mine. Only here on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. 